Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I am based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello there, Glenn. Hello, Seb. Hi, everybody. Hello, everyone. Indeed. So we have uh, an interesting topic, an interesting guest today. This is a bit outside the world specifically of MI, although, of course, this is an MI podcast after all. So we will be weaving in different concepts and ideas of, of how motivational interviewing fits within this topic of neurodiversity. Um, before we get into our discussion about the episode and then into the episode itself, Glenn, why don't you share with our audience, how they can reach us and the various platforms that can do so. Okay, fantastic. So on Twitter, for the podcast directly, it's at Change Talking. For Seb, it's S-G-K-F-R-O-M-N-C. So S-G-K from N-C. Or for myself, it's at Glenn Hines. And then on Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And for email conversations or uh, suggestions, or information on training, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Excellent. So, right. So we, we met with uh, Deb Solomon today and uh, had, a, had a really interesting conversation that just wrapped up. And what do you think, Glenn? What, what are some, uh, what, some of the things that really stood out to you? Well, one of the reasons why we decided to invite Deb along to the conversation was that I had... I am a coach with what's called the British Association of Social Workers. We offer mentoring to social workers, and Deb came along to the presentation to us and introduced this concept of neurodiversity. I'd heard of it, but I'd never really spent any time paying attention to it. And as she described it, I just thought, this is such an important piece of information for not just me as a social worker and coach, but for me as a practitioner and perhaps for everyone else to consider. And I thought about it then from the perspective of how might this influence my practice of MI? How might that influence our listeners practice of MI with this information. And what was wonderful with what Deb did for us today was, first of all, Deb shared her lived experience as a, as a woman who has a diagnosis of ADHD. And that the insights that it provided was that the doubts that she had growing up were doubts that, as all of us have, all of our doubts are doubts that were given to her, but in response to her being a quiet child or a child that seemed like daydreaming and just that difference between how ADHD presents us in boys and girls and that there was an occasion where she was met by someone who saw her presentation. She she understood that she was she was experiencing depression. And on, on one occasion she met someone who suggested maybe this isn't depression. Maybe this is ADHD or maybe this is something to do with the way you process information. And she went away and she got an assessment that identified her as ADHD and that in that moment, her life changed in that she's no longer being treated for depression and she's now much more fully engaged with her lived experience and that she has been working hard to understand what does ADHD mean? What does ADHD mean for me? How do I kind of recognize my experiences as a consequence of ADHD and then how she can then be supportive of herself in those moments? And how can she be supportive of other people that she's interacting with? And you'll hear throughout our conversation to explain to us, look, here's some things that you might need to know about me so that you understand why I'm doing it. Or if I'm doing this, it would be really helpful for me if you would rein me in or invite me to slow down. 
And that she's expanded that even further then because as a professional social worker, she is endeavouring to support other people and she's now exploring how understanding ADHD can be supportive of, she runs a group for practitioners who are neurodiverse social workers with on a neurodiverse, who have neurodiversity to help them, but also just that ability to help the broader world of people that she comes under contact with because she's developing more understanding, more expertise to help them in the same way as that individual who says, look, this might not be depression. It might be this. So that's, that was, that was fantastic. Yeah. Now she, we've had a few of our guests generous enough to share about their own lived experience with, with the topic that we're discussing or maybe sharing that lived experience and in, in, in connecting it to the topic in some way. And, and Deb was uh, quite generous right from the start and throughout, as you mentioned, um, you know, and, and along those lines of what you were just saying there, Glenn, it, it offered an important and useful reminder that labels for some can be really, really helpful. And, and I imagine there was something in the way that that information was delivered or some exchange that, you know, whether it was done in an MI consistent way or not, who knows, but regardless, or more importantly for Debs, it was that it was relayed in a helpful manner that led her to be curious and really open her eyes to, wow, this really explains things from much more helpful perspective than oh, I'm just a lazy person or I'm just, you know, less whatever positive attribute you want to say less than other people. And uh, it just, it just was, was a really helpful experience for her. The other thing too is, is as she was describing some of these um, examples and anecdotes and, and, and such uh, whether it's from herself or others that she's come across, uh, it, it just, again, it, whether it's about neurodiversity or, or whatever other kind of person or problem that we might be facing, uh, the importance of seeing the world through the other person's eyes, you know, really just to quote Carl Rogers there. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, and not just about their ambivalence or whether they want to change or not, but just, you know, how they might experience us, how they might experience our physical space, how they might experience mannerisms that, you know, I know I, I move my hands a bit when I talk. Well, I never really pause to think how that might affect somebody else. And maybe I need to be uh, mindful of that. Not necessarily for me to stop being who I am or, or to kind of sit in a frozen stance, but just to be, just to have the constant thread of like, how is this other person experiencing me? How is the other person experiencing what we're talking about? And, and that that can remain somewhat front and center uh, with the work that I'm doing. So on to the rest of the episode. We hope you, uh, we hope you really enjoy it. So welcome, Deb. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Traditionally, we would ask our guests to tell us their story about their journey into motivation interviewing. But as today is, a, is an exploration of something much broader than that, can you maybe explain to us what triggered your interest in your diversity and your journey into exploring it? Uh, yeah, yeah, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, to be honest, neurodiversity was something I'd never even heard of um, probably about three years ago. That term I hadn't heard of at all. I'd heard of probably things like dyslexia, autism, everybody hears of those, those diagnoses, but it meant nothing to me. And then during lockdown of 2020, I... Um, 
I guess like a lot many other people had quite a few struggles. Um, I was struggling to work, I was struggling to concentrate at home. I was just finding that I was sat staring at my laptop for like eight hours, but doing nothing. And I couldn't figure out what that meant. It wasn't, and it wasn't just, okay, I can't think, I can't do my work. It was just, I, I physically couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't work out what thing to do next. I couldn't process things in order. I couldn't, I would look at my emails. I'd look at my to-do list. I'd see the phone ring and then I just didn't know how to choose what to do first. And I thought that that was sign of my depression. I thought I'd, cause I'd been previously diagnosed as depression, but when I went to get some support, it was suggested it was ADHD, which was, I nearly fell on the floor at that. Cause to me again, ADHD, was something that, you know, young boys have that are running around all excitable and, you know, not me who is the opposite of that. I'm I'm the one that's zones out and is quiet. So I guess that made me think, I know nothing about this. <laughs> I know nothing about what I've just been, been diagnosed with, but also I'm a social worker and I know nothing about how this might look for the people I'm working with. So that got me into a whole path of um, research and now I'm recognizing it you know that's that's hyper focus isn't it that's hyper focus as part of ADHD I hyper focused on it um, and I spent days and days and days just working out what it meant what it looked like and I now know that that overwhelm that I was feeling is all part of the executive dysfunction that happens when you have that type that neurotype that's what was happening while I was working from home because I wasn't having those same structures and same coping mechanisms that I normally had. So yeah, that's what led me into, into this field, I guess. So a lot of potentially interesting directions there and maybe not to make this an overly clinical discussion, but ADHD or or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Deb, maybe you could speak a bit to, obviously this is too broad a term or a label to put on everyone as, as you're, case kind of exemplifies, right? And you were saying, I thought this is just something that young boys were diagnosed with. So maybe you could talk a bit about what, why it might be so prevalent or why that belief would be that this is just something that young boys experience and then kind of broaden the lens a bit so that we can kind of understand the impacts maybe across gender lines, age lines, however you want to take that. Yeah, I mean, the first thing, I guess, is to recognise that pretty much all the research that's taken place is it was using just male um, male participants, mainly children. Um, in the diagnostic manual that we use in the UK, even the, the explanation of ADHD, it mentions male and children. Everything is very much directed towards male um, research and understanding but I now see again from my research that females completely present differently to ma- to males so where I was saying that I was I was that kid at the back of the class who would be sort of I'd be sat drawing on my hand and looking out the window and imagining all these amazing stories and things I wanted to be you know quiet and invisible I didn't want to be I didn't want to be running around and doing anything but I've had it explained to me since that where the hyperactive comes in, that's because it's internal. So I'm hyperactive internally. My brain never, 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 never stops. Whereas I think it tends to be more outward in males. Um, you tend to see that more sort of outward 
expression. Girls also, I think, tend to mask much, much more. There's much more of a pressure to fit in and be like everyone else. And we're really good at it, actually. We're really good at kind of pretending. And again, when I look back, I almost had like this script of the right thing to say at the right moment. So it was like, ah, I can see it's appropriate to say this in this situation. I'll do that because I know that will be normal. That's what everyone else does. And I think that's why a lot of girls are missed. But equally, it presents differently when you get older. So there's so many things and it's so under-researched that it's, it's missed. So... I I said earlier I was diagnosed with depression, but I think that's because the only signs that you see are difficulty sleeping, perhaps uh, difficulty regulating your emotions. So you're having up and downs and you're feeling quite low at times. And that's all signs of neurotypes. But without everything else, if that's the only thing you see, then you get misdiagnosed. And that's what happens again with a lot of older women is they they're misdiagnosed with other things. Um, I read a study, and unfortunately I can't remember where I read it from, but there was a study that said that quite often once you hit 50, you're diagnosed with menopause as opposed to sort of autism and ADHD because it's the similar traits. So you can see suddenly how there's so much, so many people are missed. And yeah, I think that's why I didn't understand it because I I wasn't that stereotypical. And the media portrays it like that way as well, doesn't it? The media portrays it as uh, you, you see the TV programs where it's got a child with ADHD, and it will always be a kid at school who's getting into trouble, normally male. So I've had I've had GPs say to me, but you know, it, it's not really a thing in adults. It's not really a thing in women. Everyone has ADHD. I've had all of those things said to me by GPs. And so I think a lot of people, a lot of adults especially, don't don't seek support because they just think, well, it just must be me then. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, from what you're saying then, Deb, I guess it's it was potentially very, very significant, and that that the individual you went to speak to with the presentation that you understood to be depression saw it from a different perspective. And that that has ultimately led you down a different path. And I can only imagine how different different your life would be if you were continuing to be treated for depression as compared to understanding that you have ADHD. And yeah. um and I'm just wondering, can you say, can you say a bit more about that? What what's what's different for you now knowing that you have this diagnosis? I think I think the main thing is I can I can recognise so all these things that I gone through life thinking oh, you're just not you're just not quite as organized as everybody else you're just not as you know driven as everybody else you just you're, you're a little bit lazy and you just you know you're, you're really scatty and you're just you're just not quite as good as everyone else that's the, that's what your brain tells you all your life that you're not as good as everyone else and you're probably never going to be and it's just you and you're just a bit rubbish and I think now that I've got the diagnosis it's allowing me to be a bit kinder to myself because it's um I can see now okay this is what's happening but maybe if I just do it a little bit differently I can still achieve that so rather than me working 12 hours a day just thinking that that's what I needed to do to keep up I now see that I just need to work in a different way and I can keep up just as good it just lets me I suppose pause as well so for example impulsivity that's a big thing with ADHD and 
you know, suddenly deciding at two o'clock in the morning that you must go and paint your kitchen because it's absolutely essential to do so at that moment. I, I can now kind of have a word with myself and say, now look, <laughs> this is just something that's happening in your brain. Take a minute and we'll get to it. Whereas before I wouldn't have done that. So, um, so yeah, it just allows you to be, to be kind to yourself. It's a really wonderful example of how a label, which I think a lot of us, well, I, I can't speak for every person in the MI community, but I, I think we tend to underemphasize labels maybe, or, or certainly not, um, there's not a whole lot that we are driven clinically in terms of what's this person's label and, and let's try to ascribe this label to this person that we're working with. And, prop, and for good reason, I'm not going against that, but you're describing a really wonderful example of how there's times when a label can actually be extremely helpful for a person in understanding their experience in such a different way. You know, before, as your mind is trying to make sense of the life that you've lived and the ways that you've been trying to manage the world, I mean, listen to all those things that you were saying to yourself. I'm lazy, I'm scatty, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just not as good at fill in the blank, everyone else. And that has, that would take a toll, uh, after a while. And, and, uh, to now have this ability or this new perspective to kind of filter your experience through something that is not your fault per se. It is a, maybe perhaps a difference or a divergence to use that phrase from, from many other people, but it's, it's certainly not something that you've come to view as a fault of your own. And perhaps it's a way for you to harness strength that you weren't aware of previously. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that's the thing that's missing so much when we talk about neurodiversity, because if you look at ADHD, so it's deficit and disorder, like that's just horrible, isn't it? But I think, I think that's the point of neurodiversity as a, as a term, as a, a movement, I guess, is that it's it's about kind of looking at the traits of the person and the strengths. So we all have what they call spiky profiles, don't we? We all have those things that we're good at, those things that we're not so good at. Everybody does. Everybody in the world. So that's everyone. And I think what neurodiversity does is it acknowledges that, okay, where we're good at something we might be really good at something, but also where we might be not so good at something or we might struggle with something, we might find it perhaps really challenging. It's that spiky profile that you kind of see. But there are the good points. There's a lot of good points. And I think until you're either able to recognise that in yourself, you do you only see that negative side that, you know, oh, why can I never so this is a big one for me, why can I never go anywhere on time? Why can't I be on time no matter what I do? Why can't I be on time even when I've got nothing else on in the day and I've got an appointment at two o'clock in the afternoon? I will still be late. I can. I, I know now what's going on there. I know now that I'm time blind. And I always used to think that was an excuse, but I, I, it, it's a thing. And I know that I struggle with understanding how long tasks take and things like that. And yeah, it just helps. And just, I just wanted to add in at this point, by the way, that you might have to drag me back to the points that we're talking about at some point during this conversation, because again, my brain fires off on a whole load of different tangents, and sometimes I'll continue talking, and uh, it might be on a whole other topic. So, 
occasionally you might have to pull me back. <laughs> and again, that, that's, that in itself is really interesting because I guess what that potentially suggests then is, is that there is there's a lot of energy and uh, enthusiasm in your experience of what it is you're talking about that allows you to maybe go off on different tangents. Because the reason why I'm saying this is as, as, I'm, as I'm listening to you, Deb, I'm thinking about, you know, from a motivation and viewing perspective, our core skills would include open-ended questions, affirmations and reflections and summaries. And I'm trying to understand how might someone practice motivation and viewing recognize that this self-talk, this internalized self-talk, that's really quite negative. And, and you're saying that that, once you were able to begin to recognize yourself that there's something that you can do, so you've been much more compassionate, even just having that label and recognize, wait a minute, it's not that there's something wrong with me and I'm bad. It is that this is the way I process information and and beautifully the way you're then to be able to go, all right, so this is my mind thinking this right now rather than this is me. And then you bring that self-compassion and to go, okay, but that, that that could be a good idea, but maybe not at two o'clock in the morning. So you're not you're not jumping all over yourself uh, in a way that in itself perhaps repeats some of the negative messages that you would have been given as that quiet child or as that shy child or as that boisterous boy. That my my, my sense is is all of these all of these negative messages that we carry around have been given to us from other people that we've learned to think there's something wrong with us. We've learned to think that we're slower than everyone's. We've learned. And what you're hearing, what you're saying is now, you're able to have that opportunity to go, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe, I don't have to, maybe I don't have to believe what I'm thinking all of the time. But with that in mind then about the support that we as MA practitioners may offer, I'm just wondering about, is there something that we need to take into account in relation to the use of open-ended questions? Because we know from the research that particularly teenagers, can can find an open-ended question too big to process. So we maybe ask an open-ended question with multiple-choice answers to allow them to experience that. Or affirmations where, where we're noting your strengths and your talents and your abilities. Or reflective listening where we are just noticing to you, right, that, you know, I, I do this and I do that. I, I get scattered. And yet, okay, so that sounds like that can be, lead you off in lots of directions and it sounds like it's what's important for you is, is that you help you want us to understand because you want us to be working together and i'm just wondering then if we were to be supportive if we do notice you're getting scattered what can i or seb say that you would find helpful i think um so i because there's also the additional challenge with all of this um which is that rejection rejection sensitivity disorder which is another side of it so when when things are said so for me what would be helpful is um just to bring you back to the point you just say just to bring you back but it's also and this sometimes sounds a little bit like like you're asking for constant kind of constant praise but it's recognizing that when you say things like that that might just that's a totally innocent comment just let me just bring you back to the point. But I can guarantee that, and I wouldn't get offended by that at all. I know I need that, but I will then probably go away from this thinking, oh, I shouldn't have said, and I should have done, and I should have, and I should have, and I should have. And I'll beat myself up probably for a good hour thinking, oh, I didn't know. And I'll overanalyze. So for me, what's really helpful is just kind of 
let's bring you back to the point. Um, it was really interesting. I just want to hear about this. So it's kind of like af- just giving that affirmation of, you know, you're not, you're not talking rubbish. It's just we're, we're on this point. Um, and it's interesting what you said about the open-ended questions because sometimes open-ended questions make my brain just do a do what I call a nope. It just it just switches off and says, oh, too big. <laughs> um, I think it's really important to firstly give context to everything. So try and give exam real-life examples that we can relate to. That's really, really, really important because so many times I think practitioners, people give these scenarios or, or things that aren't real. I don't, I can't work with that because I, for my answer will always, if you say, oh, the, I don't know, there's this scenario, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one saying, but I wouldn't do that. But, but why? But that doesn't, but that's not, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so give it, it's, it, it's relating things to real life examples, to, to things I can put into context. Um, so open-ended questions are okay, but put it into context and tell me what you're tell me what you're trying to get from me first, because otherwise, again, my brain can go off in about a thousand ways, and 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 sometimes that does cause it to just switch off, and then I'm stuck. <laughs> for me, what what comes up is potentially what you're, you're describing. Look. If I'm asking open questions, sometimes it's just like falling off a cliff. I have nowhere to go with it. And I'm yeah. just wondering that how if I'm if I'm paying attention to you and I'm and I'm I'm supporting, how might I recognize you've gone off the cliff? What what are what are some of the presentations that, that people listening to this may begin become the conscious of? This client isn't being resistant, this client isn't being difficult. This client is just confused. This client is really struggling to process. Because that question for you is really quite simple, but it's really quite profound for them. Yeah. And I know and we often get this label, don't we, of non-engagement. And I hate that so much because I just don't feel like anybody non-engages. I think it's just that we're not communicating right. For me, I think what you would see probably is um, very much zoning out. So I, I freeze. And when I say I freeze, I mean physically and mentally. So I, I, I literally freeze and I'm stuck and I'll just stare. Um, but that's the point where I've already, because I'm panicking then thinking, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I've, by that point, I've also forgotten what the question was and what the topic was and what I wanted to say and everything. Um, and, and <laughs> internally I'm having a, a complete meltdown thinking, okay, now I look stupid. And then I, I can't move. Um, one thing that tends to come as well that I just really want to highlight is is the the opposite side of it is that when you're asked things and you don't understand and you can't process it and it's too big. I know that and I know that I've done this in the past is there's a tendency to just agree or go along with because you don't get it and you can't process it. So, the, you know, uh, do you think this will help? Yes. Yes, it will help. Absolutely. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> so I think it's about checking in and saying, you know, do you understand what we're, you know, well, not maybe do you understand because that can be quite sort of intimidating to ask, can't it? But how are you processing what we've just talked about? What what are you thinking about what we've just said and trying to get that person to really think? Because so many times, and, and I think as social workers, I, I've seen this a lot, 
where you've got someone that's overwhelmed and you're asking for something, you're asking them whether they're going to agree to this thing or whether they're going to do this thing or whether they think this thing will help. And it's just, yep, 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 all of it, yep, brilliant, yep. And then you get labelled with um, disguised compliance or something like that, where it's kind of, well, they agreed and they clearly have no intention of going through. It's all the same thing that's happening internally. They've just panicked, switched off, and they either just want it all to go away or they just don't know what to do. So I think that's important to recognize as well. And it seems like in that piece there, you're describing in a way why someone who is doing motivational interviewing might fit well with someone exhibiting or experiencing some of the difficulties that you've described yourself. You know, if one is practicing MI, one is very attuned to the other person, or at least trying to be, one is operating from the level of partnership, not as an expert onto this person. And, you know, not that that would guarantee success in, in kind of understanding the ebbs and flows and the freezing moments or whatever it might be, but because in MI, we're not trying to impose our beliefs or our expectations as clinicians where we might have opinions, but we're wanting to match those and try to kind of see where there's a fit between ours and the person in front of us. It sounds like that might not guarantee a smooth communication process, but it would certainly increase the chances, I suppose, that you or someone experiencing the world as you do would feel like the other person is, is trying to meet you where you are and, and trying to kind of work with you, not against you or not, not trying to force you into some line of thinking or some decision that is at odds with, with your values. Yeah. And I think we talk a lot in sort of, I don't really like to use the word community, but neurodivergent people (laughs) tend to talk quite a lot about psychological safety and how safe you feel to just kind of bring yourself into a conversation. Cause I think masking Masking happens so much and and it's really hard to unmask. And I think when you're in conversations, even with someone who's supporting you, it's kind of, um, it's a safety thing to mask and to be and do all these things that everyone tells you to do. And when you don't do that, you're suddenly really, really, really vulnerable. And I think it's recognizing those things as well, that it's okay to kind of, to kind of have those moments where, you need to sit back and process. It's okay to say, I don't understand what you're asking me. It's okay to kind of, um, it's okay to explain what you need to understand. Um, but that takes a big, uh, I suppose, emotional payout. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but that can cost you emotionally to say, this is what I need. When you've spent your whole life doing the exact opposite and saying, no, I don't need anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just, I think that's something to, to think about, but I definitely, it, I think motivational interviewing, it really does align with, with how we think it's just, it's, it's, it's all about giving space. I feel like that's, that's the most important thing. Um, and again, my, my mind now is going off on all different directions again, and I'm losing. So I'll, I, I start to ramble with words. So I'll, I need to collect it again. 
Well, well thank you. Back. Thank you for that too, and Deb. And what was interesting when you were talking about that idea of non-compliance and disguise compliance and resistance, um, it's so easy for us to recognise how easy it is then for us, given those labels, what we then expect the client to behave and how they then need to be treated. But from an MI perspective, it's, it's recognising all behaviour is communication. And what if we remain curious about this communication rather than judgmental of it? You know, what what does someone behaving like this mean? When they're and why do they feel the need to behave like this when they're with me? You know, yeah. if, if it's 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 a real challenge for us as practitioners to you know to hear ourselves saying the client's bloody lying to me. And the question is why do you think the client doesn't feel safe to tell you the truth? Well, yeah. it's, it's, so it stops being the issue of the client and recognizing what a user practitioner, what could you as a practitioner do to make them safe to tell you the truth? And that's, that's, I think, one of the challenges, but yet one of the opportunities that fits within the spirit of motivational viewing, which is what if this wasn't about being right? What if this wasn't a competition? What if this wasn't about power? What if this was about you practicing compassion and authentic curiosity to try and understand this person and explore how and if can I be helpful to you and then for them to guide us or to support us understand? Um, and alongside of that, what comes up for me, because for me, em- empathy, the experience of empathy is a really important part of our communication strategies and helping people. And for it's, it's that how do we help practitioners recognize what is it that the client might be feeling in these encounters that they might be experiencing within themselves and missing the fact that the frustration they're feeling with this client is the client's frustration. The fe- the reason why they don't know what to do next is not because they're stuck, it's because they're, they're with a client who's processing and they're struggling to work what to do next. What are some of, what again, what just what are some of those in- in- internal experiences that you might be having either at an emotional level when you've been seeking help or been helped and what are some of the cognitive experiences that you're having so that staff or practitioners or trainers may begin to recognize what if, I, if when I'm having those with somebody that that's them experiencing, not just me? I'm just thinking about a time when I, so I've had, interestingly, I was offered coaching when I was diagnosed as part of my access to work assessment. And the coach that I had <laughs> was very animated jumping about all the time maybe she had ADHD too um but it's very animated had a really bright room behind her was continually fiddling with things and um I just remember she kept talking to me and I just kept staring at her and she said and I can remember her saying you don't like coaching do you and I said well it's not it's just that all I can hear is your pen clicking and your light's really bright and you're jumping all over the place and your cat's over there and that's a really nice plant in the background and, and like <laughs> a whole load of stuff. I couldn't engage. I could not work. I couldn't, I just couldn't focus at all. But when she said that, I then sort of shut down because then I thought, oh, I've done something wrong again. So then I started masking again and then I started trying to be normal and kind of trying to say all the right answers. And I think... I think when, so internally, it's all of those thoughts of every, everything I say, generally, I'll have like a whole internal thing going on of, okay, maybe if you say that, maybe they'll think this, but maybe you shouldn't say that. But perhaps you should think, 
all of that goes on so you can imagine it's quite tiring <laughs> when you're having a conversation because you're almost having three conversations like they're all going on internally and at times that gets too noisy and I think that's just it's too noisy it's too much it's too big and that they're the times that I get I either get stuck that I can't process or I go off on a tangent it's because there's all this stuff going on and I'm looking at, at the person as well thinking well oh, they're just pulled a different face I don't know does that mean that they didn't like what I just said or does that mean because I don't always understand that and there's another thing I wanted to bring in as well and again you might have to pull me back if this is a tangent but small talk when you do things like this I don't understand that so again when I had this 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 coaching she would always start off with a load of small talk so if someone says to me are you all right I always think do you want to know or is it a phrase I don't I don't know whether you really need to know that and then again internal conversation asking me whether I should give them an answer or I should just say the phrase back because I don't know what's appropriate if someone talks to me about the weather I can I don't know when to end it because they'll say oh it's it's this and I'll go oh yeah it is and then they'll say something and then I'll I don't know when it's appropriate to end so in the coaching that was happening as well and I so again, internally, it's all of this. You need to be quiet now. You need to stop talking now. Don't don't keep going on now. When all of that's going on, I'm not listening. I'm not listening to what's being given to me or like that exchange of conversation. I'm not listening. So I think for any practitioner, it's recognising that all that stuff might be going on. And I suppose if someone had said to me, right, what is what are you thinking what is all of this stuff get like let that out it's quite freeing to just say actually all I can think about is that light in your background and the fact that you you're doing this and you're doing that and I it's just space and I know that's probably really hard to recognize but I think I think when you can see that somebody's becoming either a bit frazzled or a little bit distracted it's not seeing that as a negative. It's not seeing that as a, well, they're just not, they're not listening. They're not focusing. It's where are you going? Where is your mind going right now? Tell me where your mind's going right now. Um, and giving it space. Yeah. So the, so many wonderful ways to, as a practitioner to increase our awareness when working with somebody else and how our assumptions about, what another person is thinking or experiencing can be, can be way off having this appreciation that there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes that may not be on task. And I'm using my quote fingers that no one else can see <laughs> when you're hearing this, but that being on task is uh, that's sort of a tricky way of explaining or, or thinking about what another person is doing because that person might be trying really, really hard to be focused on whatever the topic at hand is. And there may be all kinds of other things that the practitioners bringing into the conversation or, or literally in their physical space, whether it's the, the room and on the, you know, on the screen, if it's a zoom call or, or in their physical space, if it's an office setting, that there may be a whole lot of things interfering with being on task for that person. So anyway, a number of, of things like that. And then, um, you know, you, you offered some other examples of, of helpful strategies for practitioners, you know, being mindful of, of feedback, even feedback that might feel neutral 
from the practitioner standpoint, or if it's a supervisor from a supervisory standpoint, that to be mindful that feedback that kind of starts critical might shut somebody down right from the start. And if, if that person, if that practitioner or the supervisor wants the other person to be open to what the feedback is, to kind of start with from an affirming place and then, and then following that with a bit of, and have you thought about this? And what do you think about switching this idea that might just keep lines of communication more open? You also use this phrase by giving context to everything. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of summarize the bits that, that I've been picking up along the way here in this conversation, which has been wonderful. One of the things that Glenn and I were, were curious about before we started recording was, so a lot of what we're doing in MI is we're working with people's ambivalence, right? So, you know, an easy example might be if, if we're trying to help somebody quit smoking, then they're very likely to have reasons why they want to quit. And there's also probably many reasons why they don't want to quit. And that struggle there inherently is a very common human experience of ambivalence. And, and you know, ambivalence pops up for all of us in all walks of life. And we were curious if there was something maybe unique to, and here's where we can't put everybody in the same basket, of course, but, but maybe whether you can think of it from, the, from your own lived experience or from the experience of, of clients that you have that you, you're trying to help who kind of experience the world that you do. Are there places in their life where they might be ambivalent about making changes that might ultimately be helpful for them, but would be challenging or they might kind of get stuck because of that? There's reasons for me to do it and there's reasons not for me to do it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where executive functioning comes in because I think, so I suppose one example that I, I come across in work a lot is, is people that hoard and actually there's a real link between neurodiversity and hoarding but that tends to be something where it's kind of I know I need to sort this I know I need to sort my environment but but actually it's too big or it's too much and I just can't and I just don't want to and the amount of times that I've gone gone on the visit to someone and said right you know we've got a couple of hours we need to do this and it, it there's just nothing going on there's nothing happening and it's frustrating me but now I've I think executive functioning and I've started to understand this much more now so we don't always see that end picture so when someone will say you know this is this is the goal that we're working towards we, we're very much on a now and not now kind of time frame it's kind of what's happening right now or it isn't happening at all. And looking to, again, a scenario or a picture of something to work towards is really difficult for us to see because it's not there. It's not real. So we can't see it. And so therefore, when you can't see that final picture, you can't see the steps that you need to take to get to that picture. <laughs> so when you're kind of working with someone who's saying, right, you know, this is the goal that we've got. This is how we want to get to that goal. If you can't see that goal very clearly and you also can't see any of the steps that you need to take to get to that goal, that's a massive barrier, isn't it? So with things like hoarding, we're going around to somebody and, and they've got this room that they need to clear and, and they can't see. It's either how it is, how the room is right this minute. They can't see how it's going to be clear. They can't see all those steps to take. And that often will come across as you know, this sort of ambivalent, um, you know, 
I'm not bothered, I'm not doing it, it's because of this or it's because of this or actually, um, and also non-engaging the call all the time. So just as an example of what I did with that is we covered the whole room in a white sheet for one person, covered the whole room in a white sheet and just left a tiny corner open. So we could sort of do it step by step by step. So we, they weren't having to look at this massive thing that was too overwhelming to do. And that solved that that feeling of, yeah, I'll just live with it. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's answered your question very well, but I think it's just it's important to recognise that that's how we see things. Um, I think an example that I tend to use quite often is something really simple like a shower, people that maybe self-neglect. When you think about having a shower, if you think about how many steps there are in having a shower, so you would just, if you were describing, oh, I'm going to go and have a shower, you would just, oh, I go to the bathroom, I get in the shower, I get out of the shower. But actually, there's there's going into the bathroom, switching the water on, finding your towel, do you have any shampoo, is there any left, is there any soap, is there, there's, a, there's a loads and loads and loads and loads of steps. And when you're struggling with your executive functioning, that suddenly becomes this big overwhelming thing that you can't break down, so you don't do it. But then it's well you're self-neglecting because you're not washing and you're not you can see how it's really easy for tasks to just become too big even simple tasks and I think when it comes to things so you use the example of smoking that might be difficult for someone to kind of visualize how they're going to do that because you do that in steps don't you? you you would you would stop in steps but if you can't see those steps you're just sort of bringing to somebody um, you're doing this thing and then this thing's now going to be gone because it's now and not now suddenly that's this big overwhelming thing and it's very difficult to to process how that might look or be and that's where the ambivalence I think probably comes in yeah and again it's a, a wonderful opportunity for us to recognize the challenge is not for the, us to get the client to see things from our perspective it's from a motivational perspective in particular, it's about what's this like for them? And if I am neurotypical, then going to the bathroom and getting a shower is four or five easy steps. But in between each one of those steps, there's all of these potentially micro steps. And what's it like for me to consider, you know, what, what, what decisions am I making at those micro points? Because those are front and center for you. They're not, they're not micro decisions. They're actually full decisions. They're actually things to take into account. It was wonderful the way you described that idea of throwing the sheet over something. And in many ways, that room represents an individual's life, whether they are a hoarder or whether they've got diabetes or whether they smoke too much. Their life is, is, is in that room. And if we look at it in the big picture, it's very simple for us to say, just move this and then everything will be better. And there's some truth to that. You know, this room, will, your life will be so much easier if you don't smoke as much or you don't drink as much or you manage your diabetes in a different way. But when we recognize of all of those micro decisions and influences, if we can throw a sheet over, what does that corner look like and how many micro decisions are there and how do we explore those? So that that's a really interesting way of inviting us as practitioners again to step back and to realize Understanding the big picture may mean that we become more detailed in our understanding. You know, one of the images that I would use in my training is the difference between Google Earth and Street View. 
you know, there's, there's a map of there's a map of Times Square, North New York. If you want to get from Times Square to somewhere else, just follow up, up three or four uh, avenues and then turn left. Samples. But then when you throw up an image of Times Square, there's 10,000 people in it. There's all that traffic, there's all that noise. And it's, what's that like for that individual? And what would what's it like for you as an individual to step into this other person's Times Square and feel what it's like for them to be here? And again, that's the the real opportunity for us as practitioners. So how safe am I to be with someone where they're at, feeling what they're feeling, thinking what they're thinking, and being safe within myself. And I think that's the that can that ability to be containing of other people. I just wanted to mention as well, just coming back to the ambivalent thing, um, we don't we don't always see those I suppose those reward moments in the same way that everybody else does. So I think when we you get someone that will say, you know, if you stop doing this, you'll feel so much better. Or if you sort this thing out, you'll feel so much better. We don't feel, I don't get that. I don't have that. I can't feel that. For me, it's just, that isn't, that that doesn't exist for me because I'm not there. So kind of using those, those things of, um, you know, once you've done this, that'll be good. And once you've done that, that'll be good. It's recognizing that our, our sort of sense of achievement and our rewards are completely different. It'll be, it might be something, so I use the example of hoarding. Someone's motivation might be, I want my neighbor to come over for dinner, not I want my room clear. So it's kind of what's going to give you that reward. You know, the amount of times that people have said, oh, just get this bit of work done and you'll feel loads better. Well, I won't because I don't want to do it. <laughs> so so what, it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me because I don't want to do it and it, it has to get to a point where it's either sort of if it's if it's something I don't want to do it's got to get to a point where it's either crisis because it's due in like now um, that's kind of how we're driven we're, we have what they call an interest based nervous system we work on what interests us and if something doesn't interest us we don't want to do it um, and again, that can look as that sort of ambivalence, can't it? That I just, I, I'm, I'm not, it's not interesting me and I'm not getting that dopamine that I'm not getting that sense of achievement because I don't want to. <laughs> so it's breaking it down. Okay, so what is your goal? What do you want? Because although it looks like this, it might actually be this. If, I'm hoping that made sense. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, it's another wonderful reminder of, as the clinician, you might have, a belief or an idea or an opinion that's based on your experience as a person, your experience as a clinician working with other people, your experience reading research that says X, Y, or Z conclusion about something. And no matter what that is, if, if the person in front of you is someone who is new to you, even if they're labeled in a way that 50 other people before them have been in your office, this person who is sitting in front of you that is new to you might have their own reasons for doing something or not doing something. And the starting point, well, I'm, I'm going to say has to be, which I know it, there's very few has to be's in the world, but you'd be wise as a clinician to first start with what would be in it for the other person. Why would that person who is, labeled a hoarder clean their room 
and clean and clean their house. Why would, you know, the, the example that keeps coming back to me is I, I, I used to be a teacher, we call in the U.S. special education, uh, special education teacher. And, you know, working with a lot of teenagers, granted, many of them were boys with those backpacks, almost like hoarder backpacks, if you will. You know, you, you can, it's almost diagnostic. You could like randomly select, you know, a hundred backpacks in a high school and look inside of them and say, oh, that kid's got ADHD because they're just stuffed with the, you know, the handouts from two weeks ago, the permission slip <laughs> on the field trip that they already missed because it was a month ago, but they forgot to get it out of their bag to give to their parents. And um, it, for some people to have, to go from a messy backpack to a clean backpack might bring them a wonderful sense of peace and reinforcement and satisfaction. Whereas that kid whose backpack is really messy probably doesn't care that it's messy. And so then it's like, and maybe there's some ambivalence living there in that kind of a situation of, you know, I mean, I've heard plenty of kids say, well, once it's cleared, once it's organized, I can't find anything. You know, and there's that kind of struggle of trying to really sort of see the world through that person's eyes. And so, um, yeah, just trying, being careful really not to get too far ahead of where the other person is, be careful of your assumptions about what's going to be wonderful for that person or why that other person should do something and really make sure we're, we're kind of really staying engaged. What's with the other, what's in it for the other person to do whatever it is that you think might be helpful for them. Yeah. So for like you were talking about the smoking, I was just thinking about that. And it's like, it might be that, I don't know, we all know that the health side of that is the main thing. But if you're, if you're not really seeing that, you're not really sort of thinking about that because that's not now. You might try and think, okay, but what's the thing that you really want to buy next week? And that, that might be your, your motivation because actually that's a real tangible thing. And I think it's that it's about that. It's things that are real things that are tangible things that you can picture that supports that sort of ambivalence and that not wanting to, because again, it, so many times you, you get labeled or oh, you don't want to do it or you're lazy or you have it. It's not that it's just that that's not my motivation at the time. That's not important to me right now. It doesn't matter because there's all the things that matter more. And I don't, that doesn't, I don't care about the fact that my room's best. <laughs> or I'm not you know so yeah I think it's important to just really get down what that goal might be and it probably might not be something that you've thought of but that's okay and it's interesting that you did you keep referring back to that's not now and uh, helping us understand that what's important for for you and that is how does that relate to my life right now and yeah. potentially that then informs the type of questions we ask when we're being curious, which is, you know, I understand that the cigarettes aren't that important to you or stop smoking is not important to you or cleaning your room is not important to you. It's not something that you're exploring. But I'm just wondering with a question such as, what would, what, what would make cigarettes an issue for you now? What would need to yeah. happen for you to think about your smoking now? And to actually bring it into the present and just invite you. Okay. So, and then th there's that evocation that's consistent with motivation, which is, is, is asking the client to give us insight to their reasons in the present, which is what you relate to. 
Yeah, definitely. Because yeah, if it's that question, isn't it? Of okay, what what's going to make a difference to me right this second, right this minute? Why why is this a thing? Because actually, it might not be a thing really. Um, why is this a thing now? I think that's really really important. Yeah, definitely. And rather than us telling you why it's important, it's no yeah. Deb. You need to you need to, you need to be careful because this is what's going to happen. It's going, Deb. What what would make you concerned about this now? Yeah. Or what sort absolutely. of things would make you think that now is a good time for you to begin to think about this? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and one one other thing I wanted to mention again is that when, so I know that I've been doing this just or even during this conversation, <laughs> is that when you think of something, or when I think of something, I want to get it out. So I'll think, oh, I need to say this thing, I need to get it out, I need to say this thing now. We quite often interrupt. I'm really working dead hard on not doing that. Um, but we quite often interrupt and we'll quite often jump into conversations and, and, and just blurt out this thing that we need to say. But it's because it's really hard to keep that space open in your head of, of that thing you want to say and you want to remember while also listening to the other person so what quite often happens is we blurt because it's I really want to listen to you but I can't keep that space there and that space there so I'm just going to blurt and then I'll listen to you so I think it's I just wanted to mention that because I think sometimes that's seen as real sort of rudeness and again not listening to you or anything like that but actually it's the opposite it's that we really want to listen to you but I can't listen to you until I've said this thing that's really important and you know I've noticed it during this that I'm thinking I want to say, I want to say this, I want to say this, and I'm really hanging on to it really hard and trying not to. But what that means then is you lose focus of a conversation. So that that happens a lot as well. <laughs> and this comment, your comment there makes me wonder if I or our listeners were in a setting where someone was, someone blurted or interrupted the conversation, whether it was you know, a group context, a classroom or a meeting, a business, you know, in the office or something like what would you say would be help, a helpful response, you know, from like, let's say a group leader, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I have, I have a group in three hours and, you know, I'm thinking, all right, well, if one of the kids in group interrupted, you know, what would be a helpful way for me to respond to that person that might, it might kind of more typically be a, a you know either a, a, a redirection or or even sort of a somewhat harsh like rebuttal. What would be more helpful that that wouldn't necessarily like detract from the purpose of the conversation in a broad sense or the meeting, right? But could could like still honor what this what the context was for everyone but the response would be more compassionate and maybe helpful for that person. So something I've started doing now and something I've started doing when I'm working in groups with other people is giving them a pen and paper. And I know that sounds really simple, but just you've got something to say and it's really important and I really want to hear what you've got to say, but we need to put it in the right moment. So write it down so that you're not having to hold it because you can't hold it. And I know that sounds very sort of simplified, but um, 
I mean, I, so I run a group for neurodivergent social workers and sometimes I'll be like 40 or 50 there and you can imagine the chaos of that meeting. <laughs> You've got 50 people all wanting to say their thing and that's what we've started to do now. We have to write it down so that we've got that moment and, and so that when you bring that moment in, it's, your point is important, your point is valid. It's just that there's a, ter- a certain time that we need to do that and I want to be able to listen to you when you make that point. But if you raise it right now, there's lots of other things going on. So write it down and then we'll bring it in when we're all able to listen to your point properly. Something as simple as that. Mm. Yeah, I I appreciate that as simply, you know, sometimes the best solutions are simple ones. And and so nothing wrong with that. And it actually makes me come back to the idea of ambivalence because there may be ambivalence in doing that, right? That person might be, might, might not be thrilled with the idea of writing something down. You know, they might yeah. be like, well, but this needs to come out of my mouth, not out of my hand to then wait to come out of my mouth later. And then I, I just come back to what you were saying before of, you know, cause I, I could, I imagine I could say, well, you know what, here's something that's going to work better. Why don't you write that down? Because that's going to be more helpful for the group or whatever it might be. And I also should be careful not to lose sight of, of maybe checking in if possible. Now, a lot of this can't happen in the context that we work in, but trying to make sure I'm, I'm curious why writing something down in that moment or in, the, in that group, why that person would prefer to have that experience of writing it down rather than the experience of just blurting it out and seeing what happens. Yeah, I guess that's where we come back to psychological safety is how safe does that person feel to tell you this is what I need. Mm. Uh, this is what I need to work on my best. This is what I need for you to get the best out of me. How safe do they feel to bring that up? And I think it's about having those conversations so that everyone feels able to say, do you know what? I struggle to focus in this way, but I'm going to do this and this will, this will help me engage with you better. This will help you get the best out of me. It's just, it's all comes back to safety. Because if you don't feel safe to do that, that's where the frustration happens, the ambivalence happens, the anger happens and all of that stuff. And that's where people shut down and they just don't want to do it anymore. Um, Yeah, it is all about that safe space. I have no doubt there are people who are listening to this episode going, hmm, I recognize some (laughs) of that. And if you are identifying with any of the things that you've described today as that that tends to put you on that, that, that spiky spectrum that may include ADHD or any one of the other diagnoses. What sort of advice or supportive advice would you give to someone listening to this that, that may be helpful for them to begin to explore and experiment in a way that they would find helpful and supportive to clarify what's going on and, and what, what it is they might need help to uh, feel balanced with? I think the first thing, um, because we always jump straight to medical and diagnosis, don't we? And I think that's really helpful, but certainly in the UK, I mean, there's like two, three year waiting lists for diagnoses at the moment. So the thing that's, the thing that I feel is, is helpful is firstly, I've mentioned executive functioning. So that's something that kind of, that can play a part in, in any form of, it isn't just neurodiversity that can happen um, in the menopause. It can happen with mental health. 
I think if you understand executive functioning and how your brain allows you to be productive or not productive at certain times, that's really useful to research because I think that starts to help you understand, okay, yeah, I, I have challenges with that, but actually, yeah, not, not so much that. It just helps you recognise that when, sometimes when you're struggling or when you're just not doing the things that you think you should be doing, that that's actually something that's that's happening in a part of your brain. It's not just laziness. And I think as soon as you can recognise that it's not your fault, then things become much easier. In terms of, I suppose, seeking more official support, what I've been sort of advising people is quite often online, there are what calls um, pre-screener tests. So these are tests that it's not a diagnosis, but it's it it helps you go through those things that you might find difficult, or those things that you might not find difficult, and it might just come up with a suggestion of, okay, it's showing you have difficulties with time management. This could be a symptom of, and then it gives you that space to go and research. And I think once you start researching, then you can kind of see, okay that's making sense to me a bit that I'm seeing myself in that a bit and then it gives you those conversations to take to a medical professional if that's the way the route you want to go down I think there's nothing worse than kind of I suppose going to that that GP and like I said I've had this before where well what makes you think you're this and then you just you shut down and you panic and you think I don't know (laughs) doing those things gives you that that information that you can hold to say well look this is me this is what I have challenges with this is what I don't have challenges this is how it impacts my daily life and this is what the support that I'm looking for unfortunately we have to take a little bit of ownership on that to recognize it but that would generally be my advice is just start looking at things like executive functioning seeing if that resonates with you and start there well, that was uh, that was a, a great question with some great insights uh, and hopefully some some ideas that that uh, either either our listeners themselves could could benefit from or certainly passing on some of those ideas to people that they work with. Deb, as we get close to the end of our time today, we ask all our guests a couple of questions. The first is, uh, what's something that is sort of catching your attention these days? Something that could be work related or you know perhaps is something more of a, of a personal uh, project or something that you're just interested in sharing with us. We're, we're always here interested to hear what people's uh, you know, what, what, what the now is looking like for people. I think it's interesting that we're seeing a lot more celebrities that are being diagnosed at the moment. Um, that's something that's just caught my eye recently. So there's lots of celebrities that are being diagnosed with autism um, there was, is it Lewis Capaldi was just diagnosed with Tourette. There's quite a lot of that happening in the media. And it's interesting that previously, you know, when you think of unconscious bias, so for example, autism, you would say to anybody, what does autism look like? And you you already imagine, don't you, what things are going to be said. But with this whole sort of celebrity thing that's going on, it's interesting how the media's totally changing how they're reporting it and how they're talking about what it looks like that's that's just something I've been reflecting on recently is that the impact of that sort of celebrity status on something that's been there all this time but suddenly it's acceptable (laughs) but equally 
what's come with that is there's been a lot of newspaper articles recently that have started talking about the overdiagnosis of things like ADHD. Oh, everybody's got it. Even so and so in the in famous person's got it. So yeah, I've just been kind of reflecting on that and reflecting on the fact that actually it's just that we we maybe are more receptive now and more open now to looking at what's going on and which is why diagnosis is happening rather than struggling through and masking and all of that. It's just it's interesting. It's interesting to see how it's um portrayed in such a different way. It sounds like you're paying attention now that you're conscious of it and that, that you've been exploring it. It's yeah. it's highlighted to you how the rest of us are relating to it and that, you know, there are some people who are more open to what this means and it feels like there are other people who are just going, this is just another excuse for bad behaviour and uh, we re- re- the last thing these people need is us to be tolerant of this nonsense. So yeah. it's just that open-minded, closed-minded, whatever that might be, mean, and just recognising there's different presentations or different responses to people being themselves. And again, that's one of the challenges for us as an MI practitioners is for us to pay attention what are our prejudices and how do they impact on my relationship with individuals? Who do I find it easier to work with? Who do I find it more difficult to work with? That's interesting. Why is that? And what can I do to make the ones that are difficult to work with easier for me to work with? So again, an invitation for us to do what you're modeling again to us, which is that you are sensitive to your internal and your external uh, interactions and about how do you manage those in a way that ultimately makes life safer for you, but also more meaningful in your relationships with the people that you come into contact with. And I'm guessing that there will be people who will be interested Deb, to hear more about this or to ask questions. So that this is the second question Deb mentioned that we always ask. If, if, if you're comfortable, would you mind people who hear this episode reaching out to ask you questions or to get more information from you? And if they, if you were happy with that, how could they go about reaching out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm on quite a few of the platforms now. I'm on Twitter, which is nd underscore SW group. So neurodivergent social workers group. But also, I'm quite happy for people to email. That's fine. So my email um, address is deb.solomon at uk. That's the British Association of Social Workers. And yeah, I think I think that's, I guess that's my goal for doing anything like this is just to keep these conversations going because I think by talking about things, we're normalising things and that's what increases that psychological safety because if, because really, if you think neurodiversity, that's everyone. Everyone, neuro brain diversity is, is everyone. Neurodiversity is everyone. We are all diverse and that's fine. It's just that society decided that only certain a certain few of them are typical. But actually, we're all different. <laughs> we all do things in different ways. And I think it's just the more we talk about it, the more questions we ask, the safer it feels. Well, this has been great. And those are certainly important reminders uh, for those of us who, who work with people who are neurodiverse. And, and, and even just to invite people to extend that beyond the realm of the label of neurodiverse and, and having some of these same uh, ideas in mind when working with anyone perhaps would be uh, a helpful way of uh, approaching 
professional or, or, or our personal endeavors. So, uh, Deb, we, we really thank you for joining us. This has been wonderful uh, for Glenn and I, and I'm sure for others who are, who are listening. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. And um, again, apologies if I've gone off on too many tangents or waffled too much. <laughs> thank you, Dave, for coming and uh, for your time and your contribution. Thank you. Thank you.